Welcome back to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan, and I am joined today by Frank McDonald, who is a name I, I imagine you will recognize, uh, if not necessarily by Frank McDonald, maybe by Frank M. Sounders. That's his byline on Sounder at Heart. That's his Twitter handle uh, on, t- on Twitter. But you, you probably know him as, um, as basically Seattle's soccer historian, uh, you were there basically at every seemingly important thing that has happened, uh, certainly in the last, what, 35 years or so, if not all the way back to 74 when it comes to the Sounders. And uh, so anyway, welcome to the show, Frank. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think of myself as the Zelig of uh, Seattle soccer. You know, I'm always popping up here and there and no one knows my name and that's just fine by me. <laughs> Well, hopefully, um, hopefully people are, are learning it at least. But um, the reason I wanted to have you on, uh, you wrote a story for Sounder at Heart that's going to show up on Friday. Uh, and I'll be honest, I read this thing and I got, I got goosebumps. Like I was like seriously enamored by this story. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, and I had asked you to kind of uh, humor my idea, which was what if, Seattle had been part of the original team, the original uh, 96 MLS launch. And uh, I knew that Seattle was vaguely in that picture, but after reading your story, I, I don't think I realized how close Seattle actually had come to being part of that original launch. Um, and anyway, I think you, you provide some great background on the reality of how close it came, but I also thought you, you wove an interesting uh, kind of what if tale. And I kind of wanted to talk to you both about the the real history and a little bit of, of how you saw it potentially playing out. Um, so let's just start at the beginning. Um, what can you tell us about the origins of Seattle's bid to join MLS? So that initial bid uh, was um, born out of a, a hastily uh, media uh, scrum at the Kingdom Press Box. And it happens uh, during the uh, U.S.-Russia game, uh, which was held in January of 94. So it's the World Cup year. Um, it's, it's on artificial turf, which, you know, is hard to believe now uh, that they would play that game there. But anyway, uh, there's, uh, there's over, well over 40,000 there very little in the way of marketing and and it's a boisterous crowd it's a seattle crowd it's very into it um and so uh hank steinbrecher who is the secretary general of u.s soccer uh he's the uh the face of u.s soccer at this event uh beyond the team he calls some media together and he says you know i really want to encourage seattle to to put in a bid for for mls and the reporters go scrambling, you know, they're, they're, so they're, they're going to cover the game, but they're also covering uh, what does, what does this mean? Um, because there's only about four, four and a half months from this point to submit your bid before they select the teams. And so this is all very, uh, it seems spontaneous. Maybe Hank had uh, uh, predetermined he was going to make this announcement. He obviously knew there was going to be 40,000 there. But anyway, that's, that's how it is born. And within days, 
the Sports and Events Council, as it was called then, uh, convenes a meeting and they, they call every, a who's who of everybody in uh, local soccer to, to come to the meeting. And uh, they say, shall we go ahead and launch this? Um, we all agree, yeah, let's, let's give it a try. If they're encouraging us, there must be some uh, hope for us. But I, at this point, I'll pause and I'll say, but we had all read the bid guidelines and, and there was a, uh, uh, you know, you had to have a, uh, it, it, you certainly needed a viable venue. You, it would help if you had an owner slash investor uh, you know, uh, as it turned out, MLS was owned essentially by about four people when they started. Uh, but if you could get someone that would invest or operate your local team, so much the better. And uh, we had neither. We and we had uh, been shut down. Uh, a lot of these same people had worked on getting the World Cup to come to Seattle a few years earlier. And even though we had a huge soccer fan in the governor's mansion, he couldn't get the University of Washington, which you would think could be under his control somewhat, couldn't get the University of Washington to free up Husky Stadium so we could roll out some turf and play some games there. Um, so so this, that's the backdrop of it. And so we're not too optimistic uh, and that's probably why there hadn't been a bid committee formed to that point. So the, anyway, that is the genesis was the, um, of... And was the kingdom considered kind of a non-starter at that point? Because it, it, it seems like, you know, they, they obviously had had a... Uh, they had had the World Cup indoors at this point, at, or they were planning on having a, games at Pontiac, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. in, uh, in Michigan. And so it wasn't like unbelievable that you might pitch... And, and obviously the, the kingdom had been... Ha was home to the Sounders in the, in the NASL. Um, you guys had just hosted a U.S. soccer Russia match. Um, was the kingdom at just at that point considered not to be what MLS was looking for or something? I mean, why was that not really part of the, like a viable stadium? So in terms of MLS, uh, it, kingdom was a non-starter because it had baseball. They had said if it has mm. baseball, it, it, probably because of its configuration, it's going to be round back then, you know, most of the right. Okay. multi-purpose. So it was round. It also, uh, there's fewer dates available. Sure. Okay. Um, so that, that was the case in, uh, with MLS with the world cup. Um, again, base, you, I think you had to, uh, block out essentially, especially if you're laying turf, probably a month in advance and a couple of weeks after your games. And sure. there were other colleges, college stadium, you know, I, I went to Stanford for a number of games and uh, their graduation ceremony uh, tore up the, the, the <laughs> midfield and they had to replace it just before the opening games at Stanford. So, um, but anyway, Husky stadium, come on. I mean, yeah. Beautiful setting that would have I know. been broke up. I can't, I, I can't tell you how many times I have driven past Husky, Husky Stadium and thought, man, what a gorgeous – like, if that was a soccer stadium, it would – I mean, it's – I guess as it is, it's probably the most, uh, the most beautiful view outside of a college football stadium, maybe a, any American stadium in the, in the, in, in the country. Uh, but, man, I, it's so easy to imagine. Like, you see it from a distance, and it just looks 
I mean, it looks like a it looks like a, fo- a soccer stadium. But anyway, oh, it's a postcard. It's a postcard to the world, and uh, we had some small minds that were apparently pulling the strings at the University of Washington at the time, and so we didn't get a World Cup that time around, and uh, and it didn't look good for MLS. Let's, let's just say that. But we were encouraged by what Steinbrecher said, and we got to work on it. So that's that's where we were in late January of 1994. And so um, you're, you're, you're there in, in uh, late January of 94 and was, and just to be clear, was Memorial stadium also not really considered viable either? <laughs> well, I can't remember exactly what year it started crumbling, but uh, I mean, the ceiling tiles would fall in, from the kingdom roof in 94 and uh, <laughs> It, it, uh, I think it was 94, or maybe it was 95. I can't remember. No, I think it was 94. Whatever. So the, the kingdom's crumbling, but there's also uh, the the Memorial Stadium roof. Uh, pieces of concrete are starting to fall, and there was, uh, if it wasn't in 94, it was shortly thereafter. Anyway, the place is 50, was going on 50 years old at that point. Right. It had the original bleachers. Uh, it had a crowned AstroTurf field that probably measured, we say 60, but it was probably, it probably played like 58. Um, so it was a tunnel, um, not much parking, um, but it's a, you know, it's a beautiful setting and there's a lot of history there and it's probably ready to go. Um, so that was our fallback. Um, but MLS just kept saying like, check out this, check out that. Uh, and this is during the bid process. They're saying, mm. check into Husky Stadium. And we're thinking like, we did this two years ago, or <laughs> four years ago. Um, they said, uh, uh, I think we also had, uh, if anybody knows where South High School is in the Southwest Athletic, oh, athletic yeah. Complex in, uh, in Southern West Seattle, they asked us to look into that and putting portable bleachers in uh, for a, for a like a fifteen to twenty thousand seat stadium there. Um, anyway, we were scrambling all over, and Fred Mendoza uh, kind of took the lead on looking for um, potential venues. And, and of course, Fred's now on the the, the public stadium authority at, at uh, CenturyLink Field, so he's stuck with it um, to this day in terms of finding a, a place for soccer to be, but. Yeah, they didn't like Memorial, and uh, and so we were constantly trying to come up with other ideas. And in the bid package, I think we didn't settle on anything. We just said, "Here's what we have to choose from." Mm-hmm. All of the options were bad. Yeah, and so did it. So when it when it kind of comes time to announce the the teams, did it feel like you were in contention? I mean, none. Of, you look across the. You look at what MLS ended up doing, and everyone was in stadiums that were bad for one reason or another. Either they were too big, or they were out in the middle of nowhere, or in some cases they weren't necessarily even in great shape. Uh, and I don't know who else was in the running that wasn't ultimately selected. Well, uh, that's just it. We didn't think anybody necessarily had the perfect well no one no one had a perfect i would say i would say i would argue that maybe san jose had the best uh you know it was a reasonable capacity had been used for the earthquakes and the nasl 
the Spartan Stadium looked okay, but it was cramped like Memorial would be. Um, but the others were playing in giant stadiums, you know, but actually giant stadium. Um, <laughs> so uh, they didn't look like great deals, but you knew that, okay, uh, New York's going to get a te- team and LA is going to get a team. And if uh, the hunts are involved, they're going to get at least uh, uh, Dallas and uh, wherever else they want to go. And uh, Anschutz, uh, I think, was, um, well, I, th- I think he was headquartered in L.A. So we knew that, you knew that there were certain ones. that did, They didn't have to put together a bid package. They were, they were done deals. But, you know, the Tampas and the, um, uh, some of the Kansas City, we, you know, we, we felt Seattle had a much stronger uh, soccer heritage, a proven track record and attendance. Uh, we have players that would be playing in the league. Uh, yeah, so we thought we had a lot in our favor. Yeah, and you look back on it now, and I think it's, you know, we, we kind of glossed over this, but 40,000 people in 1994 at a U.S.-Russia game that is pro-U.S., like those were all elements that just weren't common, really, in, in the mid-'90s, uh, at least by my recollection. And – and it was the, like they must have like U.S. soccer must have just been beside themselves when they saw what that looked like. I mean, this was not a nation that was routinely and really it's only been recent that we've even been able to have. And I mean, we still struggle to have 40,000 American fan, you know, largely American fans rooting on the team for you, for, you know, when they have games, you know, in places like like Seattle is still one of the only places that can draw a crowd that big for a that's pro U S um, or very clearly pro U S but um, I, I can only imagine that that, that had to play some factor, right? I mean, this is a team that still had, you know, the, the foundations of a pretty popular like NASL team by, you know, and by those standards, other than outside of the cosmos, the, the Sounders were the best drawing team in the league for the most part. Well, we, we, Seattle has always drawn crowds and has, and has not had to use gimmicks to do so. Um, when 40,000 showed up that night, I don't think anyone around here was particularly uh, surprised by it. They just figured Seattle will turn out for a, for a, a quality event, um, particularly in a World Cup year. Uh, you know, if it had been U.S. versus uh, Switzerland, Probably not. You know, it would have been half that. But um, there was a buzz. There's an expectation. And I think people around here, we just, we just, we want to support the game and always have. Uh, and uh, it's a small town when it really comes to soccer uh, to this day. And everybody knows everybody. And if you hear that someone's working on this game and, and watching you soccer, I think, was the sponsoring organization for that game. They they had their neck on the line and um, and so they uh, stepped up and and hosted that game uh, and that's what you had to do back then. But anyway, so there was a network, but you didn't have websites, you didn't have anything to right. you know, get the word out. It was word of mouth, and it and it was effective. And you uh, pulled for the home team, and you know Chris Henderson played in that game and. And so uh, there was that angle to it. Uh, but I don't think anybody around here was ne- necessarily surprised other than it had been a few years since we'd had a big soccer game in these parts, probably 
well, probably since the, the Sounders had died in the early 80s. And I guess just as, a, as an aside, um, during the 80s, I mean, the Tacoma Stars were drawing big crowds at, like, like when you think about it now, like the, the idea that an indoor soccer team would be drawing, you know, tens of thousands of fans um, on the regular is pretty remarkable. And that's what, that's what the Stars had been doing in the 80s. They, they, uh, it would look like a COVID uh, curve is the stars, <laughs> the stars big attendance. It started slow when they, when they uh, got zung, jungle and, um, and got to the um, deep into the playoffs and they spent some money. It went way up and that's when the attendance records, uh, which I think they still have. I still think they have the indoor attendance records of over 20, 21,000 there. But then when, when it started to die, it went back. I mean, just, just to put it in perspective, it went back down to five, 6,000 because the league kind of lost its credibility when teams started folding and so on and so forth. No, no fault to Tacoma. Uh, but it was a very brief time in that, uh, uh, rare atmosphere of, uh, let's say 12 to 20,000. Well, fair enough. Uh, but still, I would think, I mean, even 5,000 for indoor soccer these days would be. Like, oh yeah. Teams, it was a scene, teams... man. I yeah. mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a show. It was really uh, nothing else like it. And it was, especially when you juxtapose that to outdoor to the NASL game or even an NASL indoor game, uh, it, it was a it was a show. It was uh, you know fog and music and light shows and lasers. I, I remember one time the stars got shut down because the FDA hadn't approved their lasers. We, <laughs> you know, you don't even realize who's got to approve a laser show, but that was that was kind of funny. You know, make sure that they don't shine them in anybody's eyes or whatever. I guess, but uh, anyway, it was a very it's always been a very healthy soccer community. Yeah. Get the right vehicle. And if you do it first class. And so the, the day finally comes when, when MLS is going to announce their markets and, and what's that, you know, I guess you were, you were there when, when you found, when, when the bid committee found out, is that right? So yeah, the way it worked was uh, the, the announcement was going to come on the eve or the two nights before the opening game of the World Cup, and they were going to do this announcement from Chicago, which is, I, I think, U.S. soccer was headquartered there by then. And so Alan Rothenberg, uh, we're listening on a conference call line. It wasn't, uh, it was televised. Uh, we weren't watching, we were listening. And everybody in the room, we, we had already, you have, I mean, bids shouldn't be a, dis, uh, a surprise, especially to, to those that get called <laughs> out by name, and and we had known there was a there was a dialogue all throughout the process of, hey, this is these are your challenges. You really got to work on this and that, and so we knew that uh, we were up against it. So it would have to be, um, you know, I was hoping for a miracle, but I knew that uh, the chances of of us being named on that phone call were remote. And so the, the announcement comes, you, 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 get, you don't get it. Um, what, but in this alternate universe that we've kind of drawn up for this story, you, you do get it. 
how did you guys, so like, what, what do you think was going to, like, who would have owned the team? Do you think if, if let's just say there's a change of heart, they surprise you, you get the team. What, what, where do you see it going from there? Well, short of some Microsoft, you know, they were really coming into their own right then short of uh, someone in a, you know, if, I don't even think Ballmer was a vice president yet, but if there had been some person at Microsoft that had gotten behind it, but we, we had, again, during the world cup uh, uh, campaign to get games, no one had stepped forward for that either. At least no one of major bucks to underwrite it. Um, and so we didn't anticipate an owner and I just asked someone the other day, I said, do you think there ever would have, would have been a local owner if we'd gotten that charter team? And, and no, they, they didn't think so. So we would have been one of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, an Anschutz or a, um, a Hunt team, and, unless some uh, angel donor materialized. And so one of those, let's just, you know, for the sake of the story, you, you get one of those owners, where do you think they would have ended up playing? Well, as I said in the story, I mean, you, you go, you, we exhausted all the other venues and it was going to be Memorial. It would have had to have been Memorial. Um, we, we were uh, exploring, um, I think it's where the, the landfill is, is out there next to I-5, the Kent, the Kent property uh, and the city of Kent was very interested, but that would have been hung up. Uh, it, it, you know, it'd be built on top of a, a landfill, as I recall, or adjacent to it. And Vince Coluccio, who, who had been a Sounders owner, owned the land, so that was a good thing. But it just would have taken a number of years probably to jump through all the hoops and, and build a 20,000-seat stadium in Kent. Um, so we would have needed Memorial at the very least for a, uh, a stopgap, an interim, uh, much like uh, Columbus well, much like everybody did, it, you right. know, uh, Columbus, uh, you know, the Rose Bowl was the Galaxy Stadium for a long time until Home, yeah. Home Depot opened up. I mean, Columbus didn't get their stadium to what, 98? And that was the first of them. And then the next one after that was what, Home Depot? And that was like five, that was... Early 2000s, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so you, 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 you start off at... Um, at Memorial in this, in this, in this, uh, reality, this, this, uh, but one of the things I thought was interesting about your story is that there still is a Sounders, but they aren't these, there aren't the team that is playing in MLS necessarily. Um, how did you like, what was in reality, I guess the, the Sounders had started playing concurrent with this bid process. Is that, is that right? Yeah, so uh, it's funny at that game, uh, the Russia game, um, down in the, I believe it was the north end zone, was the first time that you really saw these sound. There had been rumblings in the fall that uh, Alan Hinton had uh, secured the rights to the name Sounder as he was thinking of, uh, of bringing the Sounder's name back and, and some kind of a professional team in 94. And in fact, at that game, there is a signboard with the new Sounders logo, and I, I think it was the one with the whale jumping out of the middle of it uh, down there. So there was a presence even at that game, and then and then uh, you know when we announced uh, when Seattle announces they're going to make a go for a team, 
you know, it upsets a lot of their plans because they're, they're trying to market a, a startup team uh, with pretty high levels of talent, all local players. Um, yeah, guys like Marcus team. Hahnemann played for that team. Wade Weber right. played for that team. Right. I mean, you, a lot of, I mean, considering, you, you, I mean, I don't know. It's just funny. You, you think of like how few homegrown players really made it in MLS up mm. until relatively recently and those early Sounders teams were populated with a ton of not just like locals but players who were reasonably well accomplished well that so that team in 94 uh and that's why I think the kingdom kingdom tiles fell that year because they had I think they were going to start at the kingdom and then move to memorial um but they had to start at Tacoma Dome because I think that the tiles were falling so they they played the first few games in Tacoma, they played, they started the season after the world cup. But anyway, they're, you know, Alan and the owner, Scott Oakey, they're trying to uh, market this team. And at the same time, we're trying to market the idea of a uh, MLS team arriving two years later. And so one of the things you had to do was sell season ticket pledges or deposits. And so we're selling season ticket, season ticket deposits, uh, for our bid at the same time the Sounders are selling season tickets to a real team that's going to be playing and it really muddies the water and I know they took exception uh, the Sounders did to, to this competition and we tried to work it out with uh, the MLS people we said hey could we can combine this this is really you know causing some acrimony in our uh, community and they weren't having any of it. And we even said, you know, could we bring, you know, could the Sounders become that team if if we get the bid? And can we combine these season ticket pledges with the season ticket count? And so we tried to make it work, but, you know, for a while there, it was a little rough. Um, but anyway, that Sounders team, uh, yes, with I want to say uh, there might have been a couple of outside the community guys, but they were they finished top of the table. They didn't win the they didn't win the championship, but they won the regular season championship that year. And then the next two years, they won the championship with essentially a homegrown team. Yeah, and and so that that is another fascinating thing that I think is so funny to look back on now is that that would have been seen as this grassroots way to kind of build up the team but in 94 it seems like an existing team may have actually detracted from the bid even though that was a team that we would see draw decent numbers especially by the a-league standards yeah i think they drew i i, I didn't i do know i can remember going to a game against vancouver it might have been the final regular season game and it was sold out which back then i think memorial was about 11 maybe it's somewhere between 10 and 10, 12,000. It was a sellout, um, you know, kind of the end of the summer before you go back to school. I want to say that was kind of the, the date somewhere in, uh, in early September. So they were drawing well. Uh, they were the only game in town that, and it was the only league that would be playing for a couple of years. Uh, they were good players, players we all knew from the UW, from the stars, from SPU. Um, so there was a familiarity and you wanted to support them and then they were kicking butt. So no, no reason not to go other than if you didn't like to maybe catch the odd splinter in your backside from a <laughs> bleacher at Memorial. 
Yeah, and I don't know what the, the condition of the bathrooms was then, but I suppose that was... They haven't they're... changed. Okay, so they were still pretty questionable, I suppose. Uh, but uh, aside from that, so in, in this kind of alternate universe, you have kind of, you, you end up having some years if I, of competing interests and Alan Hinton, an Alan Hinton-led group uh, playing through essentially while this MLS team is trying to get launched. How do you think, like, what do you think would have happened in that case if, if that bid had been, had been granted and the Sounders were an existing team playing, at, you know, playing? Well, eventually the, the Sea Dogs came into the picture uh, in 95 too. So, I mean, they got, it, it all got modeled at some point. But I noticed that, you know, and they actually played, you know, they're playing, they were playing in the center arena, which is just, you know, which is now, what do they call it? The center house or whatever that big building is on uh, the Seattle Center campus. They're playing 150 yards from where the Sounders are playing. Sometimes, you know, back-to-back nights. Anyway, but the Sounders and the Sea Dogs got along well. Uh, so I want to think that it would have eventually smoothed out uh, in that period between 94 and 96. Now, like in, in 96, if you're in Denver, there's the Colorado Foxes of the A-League and there's the Colorado Rapids of MLS playing at the same time. Um, they coexist, coexisted, but the Foxes were gone by, I, want to, I don't think they lasted more than one or two more years after that. So I think it would have would have played out but the best case scenario was to have was to fold the sounders a-league team into mls and not have the competition um and so that is kind of what i did in the story is i i came up with a theory and and so and a lot of it's based on fact is by 95 the the attendance started to kind of level off or drop and scott oakey the owner came out and said i'm disappointed with this attendance you know after such a great start it's it's you know leveled off and i don't understand it we're top of the table um what more can we do uh so uh i can see that by 96 he would have taken a a, you know an, an honorable exit you know to to give way to mls um and in the story we offer the job, the head coaching job to Alan. That, and of course he's going to take it. He, he gets to coach against all these guys. He coached against <laughs> the NASL, you know, Ron Newman's in the league. A lot of the guys, you know, a lot of the coaches were from NASL. And so uh, that's how I crafted that part of it is they would, they would um, cede to the wishes of MLS um, easily at that point by 96. And interestingly, you don't think, though, that the, the even though the, the organizations may have some ways melded together, you don't necessarily think they would have taken the name Sounders. And, and I loved your thinking behind the direction you went with that. Well, well, I just, I, oh, geez, MLS 1.0 or whatever, 0.5 or whatever they did. <laughs> The naming of those teams, you know, the only traditional one uh, that made any, and it was contrived, is DC United. Uh, I mean, San Jose Clash, uh, Tampa Bay Mutiny. Um, you know, they did. Dallas Burn. You could move those from to any city, and it really wouldn't matter. And then it was all all singular. 
You know, you weren't a, you didn't have an S on the end of your name. And there, I don't believe there was any that exercised any alliteration. So you're not the Seattle Seahawks. You'd be the Seattle Monarchs. You know, it just, it wouldn't have a flow to it or anything like that. And so I, I went on a walk when I was trying to name this team. And I thought, okay, it's got to be, it's just got to be a, a kind of a shrug type of a term where it's not offensive, but you just think, what? And then you move on. Um, and so that's how I came up with the Seattle Voyage. I, and I just love, I, I love that name for some reason. In a, it's like this perfect MLS 1.0 name where it's like, what does it mean? I guess, it, I guess it, you could talk yourself into telling a story behind it, but it doesn't necessarily tell a story that's specific to Seattle and it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but I could see some marketer putting it into a package of eight to 10 teams and saying like, no, this is, this is where, this is what the Seattle voyage represent in this like package deal that we're pitching you. But, uh, but not from a Seattle fan perspective. Um, But uh, anyway, you will fast forward a little bit. The Seattle voyage have some success in, in, in this, in this, uh, in, in this alternate reality. Um, but what I thought was interesting was that eventually we end up at a place that's not so dissimilar than what actually played out, but maybe not with the same momentum that it ended up having in 2009 when they open with 30,000 fans at CenturyLink Field. And it's, you know, let's, you know, we, we know what, how it turned out, but in your reality, how does it kind of get, like walk us up to where we are now and where you kind of leave off the story? Well, there's some bumps in the roads. There's recessions. There's the dot-com bubble. There's, you know, the contraction of MLS, you know, and uh, after 2001. And so I tried to kind of ride along those bumps. And then I thought, well, where would we get? And so uh, uh, I, I came to the place where uh, for a bargain price, uh, a guy that's operating a, a USL team down in Tacoma, a guy named Hanauer, uh, you know, sees that uh, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want all the risks. So he just buys in at a, at a majority share. So he's essentially buying 51% of the team and he gets a bargain and he just asks that uh, he, he doesn't get Ziggy Schmidt because I don't think Ziggy would have come to a, uh, I think, I think the buzz attracted Ziggy here. I think, you know, the, the idea that you're coming to a place with 25,000, season ticket holders, but there would be no buzz in 2009, 2010 at this point, because we're down to probably, we're averaging 17, 18,000. And so uh, that's where I work Schmetzer back into it because he's been coaching uh, this USL team in Tacoma and Paul Mariner, who actually did apply for the job at at Sounders FC, is one of the uh, interviewees. So he becomes the coach of uh, that uh, Hanauer hires. Uh, Brian is uh, placed as his assistant. And so really then then the narrative kind of kicks in to much like it did, you know, if you're, if, and I stopped the, I think I stopped at about 20, 2010. And yeah. Uh, so then you can kind of see the progression would be much the same. The one a couple elements that wouldn't be there is, uh, you know, I have Joe Roth owning the Whitecaps uh, uh, because he would probably also be looking for a fresh start. He doesn't want to buy a team. 
And the shackles that are put on you by, you know, MLS 1.0 at that point, that's a, you know, there's still teams trying to break free of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people don't realize, I, was, I had to go back and look at this. The, the team that averaged 20,000 a year over the first three years of MLS that still exists in its same stadium today, New England. New England, we think of them as playing to this, you know, sparse, yeah. relatively sparse crowd, but they were they were among the attendance leaders, if not the attendance leader, early on. And so, you know, at one time they were king of the castle, and uh, but you know, as time goes on, if you don't rebrand like Kansas City, if you don't uh, do something to shake it up, the Galaxy moving into Home Depot, getting Beckham. You know, you really have to shake it up to, to uh, shake off that 1.0 mentality or the aura of it. I don't know. No, I, I think you're, you're totally right. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, C- Seattle broadly, but the Sounders specifically, really benefited from having to wait. Because if they, if they come in in 96, you're, I, I think you could argue that they would have been successful by MLS 1.0 standards, at least, at the, you know, like they would have been relatively popular and they would have probably survived i would imagine through the the contraction years and and maybe they would have been competitive enough to have an extra few trophies maybe um but you know like that didn't necessarily help dc united uh dc united had had was very successful during that time and and they had decent attendance at one point but by the time you know the sounders rolled in, in 2009, they were kind of a shell of that organization. And they were, you know, having, they were, they were playing in front of tiny crowds oftentimes. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I think that in a lot of ways, you know, maybe Toronto FC changed the paradigm in what it kind they of reimagined, reimagined what MLS could be, I think. Yes. And I think the Sounders clearly took that to the next step, next level. But um, without Toronto FC, I don't know that there's a blueprint for the Sounders to kind of even envision because just nothing like that existed before that. Um, no, and- very much so. Toronto, Toronto changed the game. Uh, whether it was going to, the momentum would be sustained because, you know, then San Jose comes back, you know, they, give, they get their, their uh, replacement team, I guess you could say, since the yeah. first one moved to Houston. So they get a team uh, in, oh, seven or eight and anyway then when the sounders come online it came online it's it it regathered the momentum of toronto and these big crowds and a supporter group and a different in-stadium experience and uh and they're more competitive than toronto right uh, <laughs> from the from the start and yeah that helped and, and is going back to the uh no i don't have the, those sounders the 1.0 they or excuse me the voyage never gets a trophy. And I kind of, I wanted to kind of put that in there that they, they, they keep contending, but then eight out of 10 or eight out of 12 teams always make the playoffs. So yeah, you're always a contender, but they never got that trophy. So we would be missing, you know, the banners up there, the championship memories, the open cup runs. So I left that out. Yeah, no. And I think that that's, um, I, I think that adds to this story but I also think that it's probably, a, I mean, you look at the NASL team and for all the success they had, they, they never, they never won the soccer ball, right? No. Played for it. Played a couple. Right. Played in a couple. Yeah. Um, but it's a, 
you know, and I, I don't know. I just like I also thought one of the things when I when I pitched this story to you, I imagined like, well, of course you would have grass at CenturyLink Field, and the Sounders would have been one of the, you know, one of the marquee uh, tenants there because what else? What else is going to be? You know, like why wouldn't it be? Um, but in your in your story, which is probably more plausible, the Sounders were kind of interlopers away, and they kind of got dragged along into Century. Like they they did play in CenturyLink Field, but not with any sort of cachet that would have allowed them to kind of impose a grass field right yeah they they were still the the stepchild to the seahawks and if whoever is making decisions at seahawks if they want this service versus that service doesn't matter what the the sounders say they they you know the the same organization controls the seahawks in the stadium and so that's that's the way it goes. But they do have it written into the, um, you know, if if there's an international game and right. a draw over X, then they'll p- put in the temporary grass. But we've had some pretty sketchy temporary grass surfaces go in there. So <laughs> anyway, it, uh, someday there will be grass in that stadium that's native, you know, it's not going to be temporary. And that's what we have to hope for and work toward. Yeah, I, 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 I will say that I have thought many times about how you, how you make it work. And I'm sure there is, with, with each stadium that opens up in Europe where they have these, like, I don't know if you saw this today, like today I just saw this thing that uh, Real Madrid's new stadium is going to have uh, somehow sort of gr- grass greenhouse that will uh, allow the grass to live underneath the stadium or something. And then they'll, so that they can use it for other things. And then the, the, the greenhouse will kind of, the, the grass will come out of the green, the perfect grass will come out of the greenhouse and just be there for the for Real Madrid whenever they show up. But, well, uh, you know, uh, T-Mobile Park, they've, been, they've had grow lights going back and forth across that, that uh, field at night. You know, that's what it takes to grow grass in the, at this latitude. And it is tough. Uh, yeah. But it can be done. And if someone wants to invest in it and really make it happen, it's uh, it can quickly happen. But it uh, we're not there yet. No, no sadly. Uh, but uh, along those lines, you know, the the revolution, where it, you know, in a lot of ways, I think the the model I, maybe that you weren't thinking of specifically, but in a lot of ways, they they had Paul Mariner as their coach, I believe, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also, I think you was Steve Nickel the head coach. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he was the assistant under Steve Nickel. You're right. Uh, but he, um, they they also ended up on 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 field turf despite them having an existing MLS team, and they, mm-hmm. uh, and I think they may even moved to field turf while the MLS team was there. I think they went back and forth while they were there. I I don't know. Uh, I I can remember. And I think Giant Stadium tried to put in um, temporary grass using these, uh, oh, they were like little pods that fit together like a puzzle. I mean, team uh-huh. places have tried it, uh, but unsuccessfully in the long run, you know, it turns to muck or, or something. I, I remember, I can't remember which field it was, it's either New York or New England, where they put in a field turf field after some debacle in the NFL, and they had it installed in like two weeks because it was uh, the turf just wasn't working. Yeah, uh, I guess when when there's a will, there's a way for these right. sorts of things. And yeah. um, and it should be said, I, I at least my recollection of it was the last couple times that they've brought grass into 
uh, CenturyLink. It's, it's been pretty good. Like when they had the, the Copa America and when they had the U.S. qualifier against Panama, both those um, – and the, and the Copa America was over an extended period. Um, I, I, I feel like the grass was in good shape there. Um, but I guess that more speaks to – I don't know. We're getting a far afield here. But uh, yeah. 2026, Seattle's bid – I don't know. I, I have dreams. Oh, I, I think we've got a real shot. I think Seattle has finally broken through that uh, bias. And, you know, it's now, you know, just like if you're going to Germany, well, the final's got to be in Munich or it's got to be right. in Berlin. But now, you know, someone would say, well, what about Dortmund? Right. You know? Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I think that, that it's, it is kind of amazing to think about where Seattle exists in not just the soccer landscape in 2020 versus 1994, but really in the, in the eye of America and really the eye of the world, like Seattle has become, you know, I think it's always been a world-class city in the way that people felt about it in their heart. But I really do think it has, it's getting the recognition um, from people outside of the, of the region that it's, there's a lot going on that's positive here and that people want to be a part of. And um, I think we still within Seattle see a lot of the, the warts um, which are fair, but um, I, I'm still pretty confident about uh, 2026. And I think it would be crazy. Like to me, it's just crazy to think that we could have a world cup in the United States and it not be partly in Seattle and, and it not repeat this kind of 94 uh, disappointment, but yeah, we're not a backwater anymore. I don't think, I think a lot of corporate identity um, uh, has helped in that regard. And just, uh, yeah, just a lot of things have changed in the last uh, 25 years that will only enhance our standing and consideration. Uh, I would, but, you know, as, as much as I uh, had no hope in 94, I would be uh, crushed and really uh, flummoxed if um, if there weren't World Cup games here in 2026. Yeah, well, that's probably a good place to, to call this. I really, really, like, I genuinely appreciated you putting this together and not just putting it together, but putting the thought and kind of care into it because I thought you wove just this really compelling narrative. And it was a fun, like, in, in, a, in a real way, a good history lesson on on some of the stuff that really did happen. And... And I think it just felt very, it all felt very plausible. And I think that uh, I was um, like, honestly, getting chills reading parts of this thing. So I hope people enjoy it. Um, and well, I thank you. Yeah. And I, and I also wanted to make sure to, to plug Washington State uh, Legends of Soccer, which is the, essentially our Hall of Fame uh, for, for soccer. And it's a, and it's a, right now it's still just a site, but it's, it, it, it exists as a, uh, as a way to, to, bring back the make sure the history of this soccer in this region is staying alive and i appreciate all that you've done to to keep it alive well i I'll, if i can say 30 seconds about that so please do two things i would uh right now i'm more spending my uh more than adequate spare time um so i think we have four years out of every decade since the 50s represented on our history site and by the end of this year because I've had so much time, we should have seven out of every 10 years in there and, uh, and a lot of search terms. And so you could essentially plug in a, a, a tag and uh, come up with someone's history, which is it's pretty much fun. And it's, it'll have video, it'll have audio, it'll have photos, it'll have uh, 
quotes and text and on this date kind of stuff. The other thing, uh, we're not just about the past, but uh, right now, actually, we are, uh, Legends is um, taking applications for our uh, scholarship fund that uh, was created a year ago. And last year we sent uh, two kids, uh, they happen to be soccer players, they don't have to be soccer players, who became the first in their families uh, to ever attend college. They, they attended up at Everett Community College. Um, and so we're taking applications for that. And we're also asking people that donated a year ago uh, to consider, although times are tough, uh, uh, maybe uh, giving to this fund again, because we'd like to, we believe soccer is opportunity and we want to make that opportunity um, available to more and more people. So anyway, that's a, that's the past and that's the future part of legends. And that's uh, in case people are curious, that's uh, wasoccerlegends.org. And um, you can, you can get a membership. You can, uh, which I'm going to do right now, to be honest with you. Uh, but uh, I didn't realize that there were memberships to be had, but now I realize it and I'm going to go get one. Um, but so, yeah, I want to encourage people to, to do that. And, um, and I just think, I, I think what so much of what makes following the Sounders and writing about the Sounders feel uh, valuable and important is that it's not just an MLS team that showed up in 2009. It's this rich history of uh, not just a name, but like a soccer community that goes back, you know, a hundred years, a hundred plus years in this region. And, um, and I love hearing the stories about it and I appreciate all you've done to keep it alive. And I hope people uh, enjoy that stuff too. Well, thank you, Jeremiah. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thanks for, uh, for joining legends. You're a legend now. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all right. Well, you're listening to the Sandra at Heart podcast. I'm Jeremiah Shan. Uh, this was Fra with Frank McDonald. Uh, we'll see you next time.